When is the last time you were truly lost? For many of us, being lost today is more likely an experience of entering a wrong address in a GPS device and ending up somewhere unexpected. We still know where we are, we just aren't where we plan to be. Previous generations in the American West and elsewhere in North America had very different experiences with being disoriented and with being truly lost. Their stories are worth exploring. Welcome to the Writing Westward podcast. I'm your host, Brendan Rensink. This month, we talk with Professor John T. Coleman about his book, Nature Shock, Getting Lost in America. And we will find that how people navigated geography or failed to has changed significantly over the past centuries in North America. As with most topics worth reading about, it's much more complicated than we might think. Thanks for listening. For new listeners, allow me to take a moment to explain a bit about Writing Westward and myself. Each episode features a conversation with people writing about the North American West. Historians, journalists, novelists, poets, scientists, sociologists, and others. By showcasing their work, I hope to spark your curiosity to think more deeply about the region, its lands and environments, and the histories and experiences of the peoples who call it home. If a writer or topic intrigues you, you can find links to their work in the show notes or at writingwestward.org. And if you have a moment, please do subscribe, share links with friends, leave us a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're using to listen, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and send in some feedback. Writing Westward is supported by the Charles Red Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University, where I, Brendan Rensink, serve as Associate Director and an Associate Professor of History. For better or worse, this is a one-man operation with me playing role of host, producer, sound engineer, publicist, and everything else, all tasks for which I have no training. But I am passionate about the North American West, so this difficult work is well worth the excuse to read more books and talk to interesting people. At the end of each episode, I'll include a little bit more information about me and my scholarship and about the Red Center, our public programming and projects and funding opportunities that you could apply for. With that, let me introduce a little bit more about today's guest and why we're talking to them. John T. Coleman is the Andrew V. Tax College Professor of History at the University of Notre Dame. He's author of three books, the multiple award-winning Vicious, Wolves and Men in America, published by Yale University Press in 2004, Here Lies Hugh Glass, A Mountain Man, A Bear, and the Rise of the American Nation, published by Hill and Wang in 2012, and the book we'll be talking about today, Nature Shock, Getting Lost in America, published by Yale University Press in 2020. In Nature Shock, Coleman traces histories of people in North America who crossed over the edge of known territories, became lost, and were rattled by the experience. Through these stories, he reveals the changing nature of how people understood the world around them, how they navigated it, and when they failed to do so successfully. He brings these ideas to the present, revealing how outdoor wilderness experiences have transformed, and how getting as close to the edge of getting lost has now become something people seek out and even pay for in ways that previous generations would find astounding. While the American West yet boasts innumerable expanses of remote and rugged lands where we can go to escape our ever-connected world and potentially get into all kinds of trouble, Coleman's work across the continent and across centuries leaves me questioning just how disconnected we actually are in wild Western spaces. 
Nature shock will change how you think about the outdoors and your experiences in them. At least it did for me. And it will change how you think about your relationships with technology and your fellow man. It's pretty heady stuff, and I highly recommend it. Professor John Coleman, welcome to Writing Westward. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm really happy to have you here. This is a very indulgent episode for myself because it was a book that I just had a lot of personal interest in and wanted an excuse to read it. Oh, thanks. Um, those who are familiar with some of your previous work, uh, Vicious, uh, which was about wolves and America, and then your great biography of Hugh Glass and his encounter with a very large bear, um, and then you know crawling his way to survival. Um, I think uh, your book, this book, Nature Shock, will resonate with a lot of. There's some definite thematic through lines, mm -hmm. so, um, and although not all of the book is uh, explicitly Western, um, I think for students of Western history, most of this is going to resonate as well. Um, as a lot of it is taking place on what at the time was kind of the Western edge mm -hmm. or edges of, of European and American empires. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to start by asking you kind of how you got here. Um, yeah, obviously, it, it aligns, as I say, aligns very well with some of your previous work. Was this a project that you just kind of happened upon while you were wandering about, you know, maybe lost in the archives yourself? Um, or was this the result of kind of long intentional planning? How did you get to write this book? <laughs> well, I don't, I don't do much that's long and, and intentional. Um, basically, wandering is, is a great way to start because uh, I, I was trying to cook up a project about movement. Um, and I was, I was really interested in uh, different kinds of migrations um, and, and, and movements. And I started thinking about how everything moves in nature, even things that, that we think are, are pretty stationary are, are being eroded or, or um, are changing um, over time. And, um, you know, that, it was just way too abstract. Um, and, and everything moves isn't like a really uh, striking thesis, right? Um, so in, in the process of, of looking at uh, uh, movements and migrations, I kept running into lost people. Um, and I started to get really interested in, um, in that experience and thinking about um, writing a book about an experience. Um, so I wrote a book about another species, and then I wrote a book about uh, a, a guy who didn't leave any documents. Um, so this uh, became a kind of an interesting challenge um, to think about, well, how can I write a book about an experience? You know, a couple times in the book, a, a little bit, you give us hints of kind of your the archival digging or the process mm -hmm. of researching this, because often these people who got lost uh, we're not always the ones who left records. Right. Or any, and there's not like a, I think at one point you say, there's not like a folder that says, you know, antique lost persons, miscellaneous file or something, you right, know? Right, right. So how do you go about finding these, th these people and their stories? Um, well, I mean, it, it's kind of typically, I mean, I guess it's a, it's kind of my typical research project in that it's, very kind of needle in the haystack, trying to accumulate um, uh, stories. 
Um, often my work kind of gravitates towards um, local history um, and the kind of things that get caught in the net of, I don't know, county histories or um, even town histories. Um, and getting lost was one of those experiences, like encountering a wolf um, that um, people told stories about that tended to get uh, passed down um, uh, through families um, or, or through uh, communities. And um, in a lot of places, it was a marker of, um, of civilization in a way, or kind of like local uh, 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 community building, town building, um, uh, frontier type stories where uh, getting lost was something that happened in the old and wild days. Um, so, um, a lot of, uh, of these stories, um, uh, got archived in, in those, uh, type of sources. So in a way like commemorating, you know, so-and-so town founder, whoever got lost was a way of kind of, of a community representing itself because now modern it's moved past that and like, well, let's look exactly. at the, the old days when people used to get lost. Right. And they're, you know, of course they were fooling themselves because yeah. people <laughs> continually, um, get lost, but they were very, a lot of these communities were very interested in kind of creating a, 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 a frontier marker in time um, and then uh, feeling nostalgic about um, these experiences that were often quite horrifying um, uh, to the people who experienced them. That's really interesting that you say you found a lot of these in very local county, town, small histories. Uh, I always I often tell my students when I try to get them to work with, say, with like historical newspapers, mm. I, say, I say like, you know, you're going to find the, the wackiest stuff. <laughs> it's often in these very, the smallest town things where you find the most interesting stories, you know, stories that are not going to be syndicated, uh, you know, and found, you know, in the New York Times or whatnot. It's in these weird small papers where you get very intimate, personal surprising stories often or or yeah. like um, or like you know centennial town histories or county histories that's where you know as i've done not very much family history of my own but once a few years ago since i have a kind of strange last name it's kind of easy <laughs> to find my people and so i was just digging around randomly and i found this weird i think it was a county history in iowa and it mentioned that some rensink boys showed <laughs> like walked 10 miles and they showed up to church and they were uh, what they lacked in singing ability. They made up with an enthusiasm, it said, uh, and they were barefoot. And one of them was a hunchback. Right, there you go. And I, it was like my great, this is my great, 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 great uncle of something. Uh, that's a story that was never going to be found in anything other than a very small town source. So maybe right. lost, lost stories fit into that as well. Exactly. And they're, and they're often very strange. Um, and um, like the challenge to a historian is that they're, they're out of context because uh, often the people who collected them didn't feel like they had to put them in context um, because they were just like antiques, right? It's like we gather this material because it feels old. Um, but often as a historian, if you can go back and you can put it in its environmental or social or cultural context, it resonates um, in ways uh, and kind of opens up um, uh, the past. So yeah, no, I'm a big fan uh, of, of the local. Yeah, I, you could have strung together a bunch of stories of here's people getting lost. I guess that would have been an interesting book, but there's not much analytical scholarly apparatus there then. We, we understand 
I, I think generally what it means to get lost, but you do something much more nuanced. So maybe we should move on to a few definitions of some terms that sure. you use. So uh, the, the most obvious is you, your book is not called uh, Getting Lost. I guess the subtitle is Getting Lost mm-hmm. in America, but you use this term nature shock. Can you uh, explain to us what you what you mean by that and how it relates sure. to getting lost? Well, um, you know, I kind of started out the book just talking about getting lost, um, and I, I I ran into this problem, um, which is I think a problem that you run into when you're talking about an experience is that it's hard to pin down exactly what you mean because there's so many different kinds of getting lost, right? There's kind of metaphoric getting lost. There's uh, vaguely not knowing where you are. There's um, all these different kinds of experiences. And um, it was really difficult for a reader to know, well, what what exactly does does Coleman mean when he says getting lost? Um, So I I decided that I really wanted to um, explore the most extreme uh, versions um, of getting lost. Um, these moments when people tipped over a line from being kind of confused to being um, extremely challenged uh, mentally um, by their disorientation. And there were some descriptions of this um, uh, in, in the 19th century, and they used this term wood shock. Um, so it was like the, the most extreme examples of somebody getting lost in the woods, they experienced wood shock. So you found Um, like this in contemporary sources, they would talk uh about, uh, so-and-so showed up and they had wood shock. Right. Um, and I wanted to talk about experiences, um, in the woods. Uh, uh, sometimes people got really, really lost when they couldn't find a landmark. So, uh, being in the big a wide open space could cr- create this experience as well. So nature shock seemed to capture um, all, all of these extreme um, uh, moments. Um, so I wanted to set that edge as clearly as I possibly could um, uh, with the book. So that's why I, I titled uh, titled it Nature Shock in the end. So this gets you away from you jokingly, maybe it's just in the acknowledgements about all the elevator conversations you had trying to explain to people what your Getting Lost book was about. And so did this kind of help you make it less nebulous and, and more focused saying you're, you're, you're talking about a very specific kind of disorientation yeah. or you know, uh, physical, psychological, cultural experience? Exactly. And okay. that that's, um, uh, and also I think it, it uh, and it, it and, and for me, it actually set up some guardrails for myself um, because I tend uh, to want to wander into different kinds of meanings and play with language um, myself. Um, so this is uh, w- was helpful um, to to establish some parameters for me, and I think it was also very helpful in the end because it kind of got me back to um, what my work really revolves around whether it's wolves or Hugh Glass or this experience, which is trying to bring together um, environmental history, um, social history, and, um, and cultural history. 
Um, so uh, Nature Shock kind of combined uh, those three elements um, and, and, um, and made me feel more comfortable about my ability uh, to interpret it. Yeah, it brings it right into your wheelhouse. Yeah. Um, I don't want to disturb the ghost of Frederick Jackson Turner, but, <laughs> you know, he famously argued that this experience of Americans encountering and conquering the frontier uh, is what made successive generations of Americans uniquely American, like this frontier being out on the edge experience. Is there, uh, and, 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 you know, his essay, you know, the significance of the frontier in American history. And he says, this is American, American history is the history of a frontier. Uh, you don't, you don't make that, that bold of a statement, but is there a corollary here in which you think that this being on the edge, the experience of being disoriented uh, has more broadly on, you know, American society and how we've evolved? I, I, I mean, that's an interesting question. I guess I was, uh, I, I guess I was playing along to a certain extent um, uh, with, with frontier history and that I was um, really kind of curious in this book is like, well, what did it feel like to approach an edge? <laughs> like not, you know, not a, a, a historical or a historian constructing this concept um, uh, and, and applying it to, to, um, to the action of societies and, and nations. But like, well, what did it really feel like when you hit an edge um, and what did what did an edge mean to different different people? Um, so uh, so yeah, and in in that extent, it is a frontier book. I really was interested in kind of the frontiers of of perception, um, and then it kind of that kind of gets you back to the story of 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 settlement and conquest in that. Uh, People often found those edges uh, when they were settling and conquering um, other people's territory, right? It was the kind of willful ignorance of thinking that, um, you know, you could take over this space that you didn't really know very well um, that led to, that often led to um, uh, these, these types um, uh, of experiences. Uh, what it says about America, I guess I, I, I was more interested in, in what it said about, well, what does that mean to be human um, and these larger um, transition points between how I set it up in the book is it's I was really interested in um, how over the long durée you can see this shift from people navigating space and therefore getting lost um, uh, in this kind of relationship with one another, right? That in the early modern, it was very much dominated by um, uh, these con con concepts of space that were relational. You knew yeah, you where you were by who you were related to and how that gave way to a more individual um, uh, conception of space. So all these terms, you know, they bounce around in these kind of ternarian ways um but i was trying to to get at something a, a little bit different yeah these are the those are the other two big terms i wanted to chew on for a minute uh relational space and individual space <laughs> and these are kind of these are very conceptual sometimes hard to grasp ideas when we talk when we start talking about social spaces um non-geographic spaces mm -hmm. um so 
and through your book, you start with, um, you know, these early histories of, you know, conquistadors in Florida or, you know, Puritans up in New England and French fur traders and, you know, Jesuits and stuff. Um, and how they're, they're viewing geography as a relational space. It's defined by who they know and what those people know about space. And it extends outwards until at some point, um, if you step beyond that and you become untethered from the people you know and the places they know, that, then you're kind of lost. And then you right. transition into eras in which there's a little bit of that. And then this new kind of individual space. So I was, maybe could you give us a, um, maybe a, a, a brief example of one of these stories that really typifies uh, people navigating relational space? And then maybe a good example of one that is this other type of you know, geographic spatial reckoning of individual space. So we can kind of sure. see a clear division. Yeah, well, maybe I'll, I'll just uh, pluck one from from the, the earliest chapter. So you have um, Hernando Soto, who's um, a, a conquistador, who's basically wandering around um, uh, Florida and then to uh, other uh, places in the American Southeast uh, for months and months and years um, and doesn't declare himself lost um, until like a year into not knowing where he's at, right? So that was a moment where I was thinking, well, what, how could this, why, <laughs> what's going on here, right? Well, how could you get lost um, after a year of wandering around? And my interpretation of it is that that's the moment then he lost his grip on this social hierarchy, which was really his guiding light, right? His guiding light was, I am a gentleman. I am at the top of this social hierarchy. Um, and once he lost his grip um, on that place, he lost his grip on his sense of geography. Um, so, and, and I, I guess the ultimate form of relational space Geography doesn't have a whole lot to do with where you think you are, right? It's it's your relationships with other people that that give you uh, that sense. Um, so if you flip into um, uh, individual space, um, you know, I, and I try to to set up that these are not there's like not one moment when you cross over from the relational into uh, 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 the individual that it's, it, it lingers. It's, it's not a historical, it, you know, we're used to talking about like historical periods where you step over a moment and you're in a completely different period. I think they kind of faded in um, uh, to one another, but the hallmarks of individual space are um, you are, by yourself, but you're also enmeshed in these incredibly large um, structures of, of of information and communication, right? So, to be a lost in individual space is to um, uh, to to perhaps lose your connection um, to um, an internet server or to um, these these other to the, the network of, of, of the mail, um, uh, of mass communication, industrial communication through print um, and these other um, uh, ways that people gathered um, information. And it's my contention that there's, 
um, the strange kind of self-delusion um, uh, in individual space where you actually can have this idea that you're alone only because you're enmeshed in these other uh, these other institutions and service economies and um, a lot of the the second half of the book is really focused on tourism um, and how tourism in in a lot of western spaces is set up to create uh, this sense of of being disconnected but it's only uh, by being connected to these rather anonymous um, uh, larger industries that, that you can even pretend um, that you're doing that. And is this like uniquely a modern phenomenon, do you think? Yeah, I think so. I think, and, and, and kind of the argument that I propose is that the, in North America, that the, the 19th century is really critical um, because that's when you see these larger communications um, uh, systems uh, getting in place uh, through the communication revolution. Um, and a lot of people, you know, they were trying to maintain relationships over vast spaces through writing letters to one another and doing all the all these different things. But at the same time, as they were pursuing these relational goals, they were also building up these um, uh uh, systems that would uh, get them into individual space. So they didn't do this on purpose. Um, they 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 were doing what they thought they were always doing, but uh, it eventually changed uh, the ground um, uh, underneath people's feet. You explain that this gets really complicated and a little muddy. Um, I think it's you're commenting on Mark Twain, and you know he'd had this experience outside Carson City with their guide, you know, prided himself of having, you know, like dead certain reckoning, just knew exactly where he was going and they're lost in it as like a blizzard or something. Uh, and then after a long time, they realize, oh, look, here's tracks, we're on the right way. And then they realize, no, that they've been, it's their own tracks, they're going in circles, right? But you also say that he uh, writes about kind of this flood of information about the West. Um, as people, as you say, are building these networks of communication and infrastructure, writing letters, publishing accounts. And so Easterners looking West or overlanders who are about to go West, they suddenly have maybe too much information or, and sometimes misinformation. So what, is, what does that do, especially in terms of kind of this, this blending of relational and individual space uh, as the amount of information that people are consuming or using to position themselves or understand where they are, where they're going. Uh, what does that do uh, in kind of that mid 19th century era? Yeah, I mean, uh, so, uh, you know, a lot of that, all that's from roughing it. And I, I read roughing it as um, it's really self-aware um, kind of Western commentary and that it, a lot of it is about Twain trying to find something to write about um, and uh, using the West as um, as kind of his the generator of his uh, uh, career as an author, um, and he's very aware of this. Um, so I think it's 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 no mistake that he starts the book by riding in a stagecoach, where he's actually sitting on these bags of mail, right? So communication is um, is at the center 
um, uh, uh, of the stories uh, that that he tells. Um, and in the end, you know, he talks about miners and there's all this different, all it's like story of exploitation and getting rich and doing all these different things. And then um, in, in, in all these uh, wild stories about the West that he is uh, both perpetrating and propagating um, uh, through uh, his own writing, but he's also aware that this it's it's it, it's meaningless, right? It's <laughs> it's lies, it's uh, tall tales, it's uh, like people that think that they can use this information um, to actually get uh, to the West or to achieve the glory that they. Um, that they desperately want, um, that they're fools, right? That this is just another um, bombastic kind of, of creation. Um, and, so and it yeah, gives them this confidence that they won't get lost, right? Oh, look, yeah, exactly. all of this information to go out into this, you know, to go brave the unknown. Yeah, I mean, it's like the, the, it's the promise of industrial information, right? That you can go out and purchase um, and read um, uh, enough information that you do not need the help of anybody that actually lives um, in these spaces. So you do not have to. So that's a, it's a critical moment moving from relational space to individual space, this notion that, well, I can get a book, I can get a guidebook that will tell me how to navigate this space. I do not have to establish relationships with anybody um, who is there. Um, and I think that there's that's there's no mistake why these guidebooks are so racist and often um, uh, incredibly vicious towards the people who are actually living there, because in some ways they're promising the people who read them, they don't have to they don't have to bother um, with the people who actually inhabit or claim uh, these spaces before them. So previous generations in order to not get lost or to successfully navigate new territories, they had to rely on uh, locals yeah. who already lived there, be they indigenous or others. And that's this relation, how they're building a spatial awareness through relationships. But when that's put in print, you can just go brave it on your own. Yeah, or at least a, there's this idea that you can do that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's often, you know, getting lost is a mistake, right? So it's, it's a glitch in the system, which I think makes it such an interesting experience to look at, right? Because you can both see how people were trying to set up their world, but also how, you know, there's never a perfect setup. There's never, you know, um, and so the book is always about people falling through um, uh, the cracks um, in these systems that they, th that they, they usually work pretty well um, for most people. Maybe we should talk about a few individuals um, because the experience of getting lost uh, meant something different in different eras, not just to the person, but to their standing in society, with mm -hmm. their families, with how they you know, viewed home and family. Um, sure. Um, and you talk quite a bit specifically about uh, kind of some differences early on, especially between uh, you know, married men who had families who were ranging out to hunt, you know, to supply for their family versus, and maybe getting lost versus a, a single bachelor who gets lost at the same time period. Uh, 
you, you talk about children getting lost. Give us a few examples. Like what are some of the differences and what, what did it mean? Say when they uh, were lost no longer and they came back, what, what did it mean differently for them uh, depending on kind of their life situation? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, yeah. And it's an interesting, I mean, one of the things I wrestled with throughout the book is this, um, you know, a lot of the examples of people getting lost uh, were, were kind of powerful people, you know, it was often white men were the ones that were telling these stories. Um, and, you know, it could often be a getting lost could be a challenge um, to their status. Um, it, it kind of proved that they didn't know what they were doing. And sometimes getting lost, you know, there were consequences, like physical consequences. You get lost in the middle of a blizzard. I mean, you could lose your hand, you could, uh, you know, frostbite feet. Um, so your failure could resonate many years um, beyond the actual uh, event. So I think that there's, there's always that, that tension um, there. Um, and then there's also stories about really vulnerable people um, uh, getting lost um, in children. I found so many lost children. Um, and a lot of that had to do with these kind of, um, uh, you know, agrarian situations where children were put to work um, at some, to us would be insanely young ages. Um, so like three or four years, you know, three or four year olds being asked to go out and herd cows um, and do these jobs and, um, and getting lost um, in the process, um, uh, of that. Um, and, you know, often the, the stories of children were told within families, like, oh, remember the time when so-and-so, um, uh, got lost. They're often told by communities, um, because, uh, the framing of a child getting lost, uh, was usually, the story was usually, oh, so-and-so wandered away or so-and-so was asked to go bring in the cows for the night and they didn't come back. And then the community rallies um, to go search um, uh, for them. So sometimes um, uh, communities told these stories about, they paired up childhood with this kind of early frontier moment in their past where they kind of, they kind of reinforced one another where the, you know, that's like, oh, the community has grown beyond this, just like this child has, has uh, grown beyond it. So I, I think that the, that's why they, they really liked those stories, but also found plenty of examples of children who didn't come home, right? Like the child who, um, there's lots of stories, especially in wintertime during storms where people were discovered um, you know, only a few feet away from a cabin or something like that. That's another kind of story. So there was definite, um, you know, um, it, could, it could get gruesome um, a, a, as well. But how does, uh, how does the outcome change the way people talked about or told that story of someone getting lost? You know, the, the kid who comes back and how the community talks about that versus the, the child who didn't. That's a great question. Um, is there a difference in, you know, I mean, you say that it was, you know, to, to us today, the idea of sending a four-year-old out in the woods to go scavenge for, I think it was sarsaparilla or something right, for right, these right. kids, right. Um, to us sounds absolutely insane. And if we were to do that, whether or not my kid came back or not, 
most people would probably be talking about what a horrible <laughs> talking parent, about parent you. I am, right? Yeah, yeah, no, and then no, they did. I mean, that's um, this the story you reference is this uh, kind of little pamphlet that I found um, about this uh, child named uh, Paul Gasford. They call him um, in the in the pamphlet, and um, and he gets left behind by his parents who are moving their family. Um, uh, uh, in upper state New York along the Great Lakes. Um, and they, uh, they, they stop their boats and then he gets lost and um, they just think they're never going to find him um, again. But he performs this miracle of, of navigating on foot um uh for uh 40 dozens, miles or something. something like that dozens of miles and then he shows up and the town celebrates and he becomes like this example of this um you know this very precocious kind of independent um american right that they can be cast out into the wilderness and uh so that story has this kind of uh heroic um underpinning um a lot of the but a lot of the local stories they just kind of end in confusion you know whether the the child makes it or doesn't sometimes the point is just well these are really tough times right that these were these were um you know these were moments when um, you know, the, the wilderness could swallow you up. Um, so there were examples of um, kind of this heroic getting lost, right? This notion that, oh, you survived um, uh, the wilderness, uh, which shows something about your character or things like that. But I would say that that's kind of, that's more of a hallmark of individual space um than it is a relational space i mean in individual space there's this this notion of this kind of touristic wilderness notion of well you, you go out into the to have these experiences out in nature to to change something about yourself right that you go out and you discover uh, something um, about yourself. And there's echoes of that early on, especially, um, uh, I would say, right around um, uh, the time of the American Revolution and early American nationalism, uh, where they were playing around with some of these ideas. Um, but often, the, it's you don't get that resolution. Uh, whether they came back or not, it's not about... Um, well, what happened to that person or what did they discover? It's more about, well, this just shows what what the world was like, right? Um, and um, so, yeah, no, that's a, it's an interesting, um, uh, you know, it's and often local histories end that way, right? You expect like more of a payoff than, than they tell actually us what it give. means. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And you just end up with this moment where it just seems weird, right? <laughs> Yeah. I want to move a little bit to more to the modern era. Um, uh, one of the interesting, you talk about a lot of transitions about how people's relationships with the environment are really, you know, changing over these years. Uh, one of the ones I found really interesting, you know, starting, you know, maybe by the, towards the turn of the century, when there is enough of these of infrastructure and support systems that give individuals the confidence to kind of range out a little bit more on their own. 
Um, and you talk about how a lot of outdoorsy activities, which today, you know, there's a multi bazillion dollar industry, <laughs> uh, you know, a, a gear industry and to, so we can get decked out in our Gore-Tex and Merino wool and, you know, whatever else, uh, to go out and have some wilderness experiences. But a lot of those activities that we're doing for fun uh, used to be work. So what, what's this transition from, you know, camping and hiking, not something you went and did for fun to it becoming something for fun. And then how does that relate to then, again, coming back to this idea of nature shock and people's experiences of going past the edge and having some a real disorienting uh, experience? Yeah, no, when you read, you know, some of the early Boy Scout um, material and, uh, and a lot of kind of the 19th century outdoor uh, literature, it's very striking how, um, you know, the, Bo the Boy Scouts especially, I mean, they just go job by job, you know, whether it's, um, I mean, they even talk about like blacksmithing and other things. And, um, and it's, it's all constructed as, you know, um, you're assumed that they're children who they don't have a profession yet. Right. But it's also this complete shifting of what these spaces mean, where they're going from uh, places of work to places of leisure, uh, to where these activities of um, physical activities of cutting down trees, of making fires, of uh, hunting, feeding yourself, cooking, all these different activities um, uh, get flipped. And the assumption is, well, the people who are not out camping, who are not on vacation, they don't do this stuff anymore, right? So um, uh, camping is a, is a place where you can engage in that labor, um, but the meaning is, is um, you know, it's not a nine to five job that might um, be tough or, or exhaust you or, or keep you away from, the other things in your life that you might want to be doing instead it's it's um you know it's these are activities that create meaning that change who you are that put you back in touch with um uh, a world that no longer exists um that is physical instead of 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 mental or anxious i mean a lot of the language they use is like you know this is stuff that's happening in people's heads right? And people's heads are messed up, um, which makes getting lost so interesting um, because it's like they're, the, the, liter the outdoor literature is stepping towards this kind of psychological um, and, and mental understanding of, of what it means to interact with nature. And getting lost kind of is on the borderline between um, camping and recreating outdoors that provides mental health um, right, getting lost is not mental health. <laughs> getting lost is is something has gone wrong with your vacation, right? So a lot of the literature is like, well, what do you do when you get lost? How do you get back to the vacation that is supposed to, um, you know, make your brain a healthy brain, right? Um, hey, you're right. That they, a lot of these guidebooks would talk about the psychology of it, saying, you know, getting lost is, is a mental state. And right. people get in trouble when they panic. Exactly. When they kind of right. lose their head. I mean, I think one of your ch chapters is entitled is Keep Your Head. I think. Yeah. 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 yeah that's, that's exactly the first piece of advice they always give is like, keep your head. Right. 
um, which kind of reinforces this new construction of a leisure wilderness, which is all about uh, escaping anxiety, uh, restoring sanity, um, uh, you know, getting away from, you know, the noise of the city um, and, and kind of the, this notion that modernity is, um, is, is literally a form of insanity, right? So the anecdote, antidote is to go to these quiet places and reconnect with these um, kind of activities that, um, that, that are no longer part of your life. So it assumes, right, it's a very middle-class white construction of of the way the the world works um but uh but getting lost is right there um and um and, and it's an interesting you know and it's and a lot of what goes on in the book is tracing a trajectory where getting lost is a horrifying experience in the early modern in relational uh space kind of the the turn of the 20th century getting lost as you move towards this more leisure understanding of the wilderness of the recreational wilderness uh getting lost is doesn't quite fit into what they're trying to create but one by the time we get to post-world war ii america getting lost is a good thing right you're supposed to go get lost um uh in these spaces this is kind of the final turn i i that your book takes and I wanted us to get to, right? This moment where when we're going out into a real like romantic nature, romantic wilderness, like where we're out there to uh, for our own mental health, the there's a premium that starts to be starts being put on getting as close to that edge as possible. And if you're you're not on the edge of getting lost, then you're not really having that experience. This is really well you know, vocalized by Ed Abbey you talk about for a few pages and i think especially here in utah or in the southwest a lot of people are probably familiar with him um but what does he argue what is he so concerned about so he was like he was a ranger at arches when it was a national monument and then he later wrote this book uh, desert solitaire uh kind of i mean he's he's like just the greatest curmudgeon um but just (laughs) like really griping about all these tourists but what was he so concerned or upset about uh, he was he was concerned about the impossibility um, of getting lost. That um, that kind of these um, these networks of transportation, networks of of communication, um, commercialization of 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 um, recreational spaces. Uh, this notion that um, you know national parks and and other places where people went on vacation that they were for people in cars, that they were for families, um, that they were um, places where uh, tourists were catered to, um, and they never had to get out of of their comfort zone um, uh, because of that. Um, so he was, you know, probably the the ultimate example of the rebellion against that. So he romanticized getting away from all that, getting out into these spaces. And if, um, if you die lost, good for you. <laughs> right. <laughs> so he has this famous example where he, you know, he's a, he's, he's a ranger and he goes out and, and he finds this guy, a pr- photographer, I believe who had a heart attack or something and, and died, um, in the back country. And he's like, 
he reads the the signs of the death scene and he says oh the, this guy must have been lost and what 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 a perfect way to die right was his interpretation that he had escaped um uh, uh finally escaped modernity um and, and he admired him um uh for that yeah and so he's encouraging us to uh, yeah wander off trail and you know truly disconnect uh you argue especially the more modern we get that as you say this is kind of an impossibility um you write at one point i'll quote you here sorry to quote your own words i know it's the worst um you say technology encourages the paradox of cutting loose while staying connected and we saw this way earlier uh with perhaps information uh, which I, maybe we're not quite calling technology, but you know, when overlanders, they suddenly had all this information they felt they could, um, you know, really get out there while staying connected to some, some you know, base of, of information and, and knowledge. But, um, but it is this paradox because we don't, especially in the modern world, we're less and less willing to really get out there and go across that edge without the safety net right well but at the same that... time like the experience what we're looking for is to be out there without a safety net <laughs> but that's just not how we're built anymore it seems no well and i, I think that that you know and this that very situation i mean really is mobile technology which i think in the last decade or so or or or, or a couple decades has really made space um fascinating to a lot of people, including academics, right? And I don't think that there is any accident that, that that's happened now, um, because I do think that our, our, our geography and our sense of, of, of being in place, moving through spaces um, has, has pretty much, has radically changed in some ways. Um, so I think that, that um, you know, the, one of the reasons why um, you might be interested in a book like this or getting lost is like this, you know, the, this has a history, this phenomenon um, has a history. And I think that we've gotten to a point now where individuals are so empowered uh, through technology to be able to precisely pinpoint uh, where they are um, on, on a, um, you know, on a, on a, on a, uh, cellular phone screen, um, that that is, it's, it's almost like the ultimate expression of individualism, right? I don't have to talk to anybody. I do not have to stop the car and ask, <laughs> you know, the gas station attendant where I am, right? I don't even have to get a, a physical map. I've got this interactive technology and a, and a blue dot, um, which tells me, um, um, where I'm at, I can even get, you know, a computer voice to kind of direct me dictate around and, and be my friend. Right. Um, so, so there's that kind of ultimate expression of individualism, but at the same time, we all understand the incredible power of the companies that control this information. Right. So a lot of, um, I think what's happening uh, with navigation and communication and different things like this is this paradox of being feeling maybe um, super empowered 
as an individual at the same time as you're super disempowered as an individual being caught up in these uh, networks that may only see you as providing a bit of information that they can, you know, monetize into some kind of advertisement for you down the road, right? So it's, it's, it's that, um, that paradox that I think is, is really interesting. And I think grows out of, um, of, of this history uh, that I talk about, that this is kind of um, an, an ultimate endpoint of something that's been brewing um, for, for many decades. And there's a dangerous, you know, potential end. We feel so empowered because we know exactly where we are, but we know exactly where we are on the screen, right? Right. And if that's taken away, uh, we, as a society and individuals, so many of us are not as good of actually navigating around an actual, not the space on the screen, which is not a physical space. It's a representation, right, of where we are. But then, uh, you know, having your cell phone die or something, and then having to navigate around actually physically, we may have no, we, we've lost that skill. Yeah. Which yeah. Is no. And, you know, and there's, there's and disorienting, all, right? Yeah. And I, you know, and I, I, I definitely think that that that's happening, but I'm also interested about these narratives of that happening <laughs> because I think it feeds into these, these visions and almost uh, redrawing of the getting lost line where in the relational, it was like you got lost when you got disconnected from the people that you knew, right? In earlier forms of individual space, you got lost when you got lost in the information system or the information system led you um, uh, astray. And now it's like this anxiety about, oh, are we too dependent on this technology? Or these stories about, well, when we turn off the technology, is the world going to end? <laughs> There's like these doomsday scenarios. They're just like, well, what are you going to do if the world, if you know, if the world ends, uh, how are you going to take care of yourself if you don't know how to navigate um, actual space? Um, so, I mean, I feel it myself. I mean, like, okay, I used to be able to. Uh, go on a road trip with a map and I would memorize, you know, the different places that I had to turn. And I got a, de you, you definitely get a, a different sense of space by knowing that information and trusting your ability, your own memory um, to make those, those connections. Um, so I definitely think that that's going on. Uh, but I also think that it's an interesting cultural moment uh, yeah. as well. These, the, these anxieties say a lot about, um, you know, uh, how, how maybe space is changing into something else um, that this, it, it's getting more and more uh, like a cyborg uh, <laughs> type, type experience. Uh, well, we're quickly running out of time. I wanted to maybe end with a dis quick discussion of what you actually opened the book with. Um, you know, so in Western history, endless stories of people going out and exploring kind of beyond where they knew and, and getting lost or not. But this very modern phenomenon of a desire to intentionally get lost, which you open up with, uh, with this explaining about what you call a bewilderment service, a particular one called Black Tomato, but there's, there's lots of these kind of guide companies which will curate for you um, a kind of a getting lost out there on your own experience. But paradoxically, 
you're not really lost because they've curated it for you and they're watching and taking care of you. Explain to us this kind of modern phenomenon. And, uh, and I just, I mean, you don't have to get into this, but it, it just makes me wonder, you know, what would, if you were to go back a hundred years and talk to one of these survivors who had gotten lost and made it and then explain to them that people are now paying tens of thousands of dollars to intentionally get lost. It would just blow their minds, but anyway, sorry. Well, what, what's the, what are these services and what does this say about this whole story? If this is kind of where the one modern iteration of this is now. Sure. I mean, it, it, well, I mean, it says a lot about um, the tourist industry and its development. Um, like you said before, I mean, this is a, a multi-billion dollar industry now that has the capacity to be both invisible and omnipresent, right? So I think that that's a lot of what's going on. It's also the technology itself um, where you can have people who are, you know, far away, but very near technologically um, uh, uh, through these uh, uh, devices. Um, you know, it's, it's a, in some ways, it's a democratization of what used to be a very upper-class experience of service, right? In, in some ways, you know, um, it's especially in the United States and and um, in the recreational industry, is is you see this phenomenon of you know um, butlers and cooks and um, uh, you know these these services that you you could only afford if you were Andrew Carnegie um, at the beginning of industrialization uh, eventually get spread um, uh, to to more. Um, uh, middle to upper middle class um, uh, people, and they develop a sense of expectation, right? Um, and they also develop this narrative that is very, in some ways, uh, re resembles this kind of upper class narrative of like, well, I'm doing this myself, right? I am a rugged individualist meet my butler right <laughs> or uh, as you're you glamping know, right exactly but you know uh, you know army officers were doing that um uh, forever you can find examples of of that in western history of of you know teddy roosevelt and others portraying themselves as these um uh, remarkable remarkable self-made men but they were enmeshed in these uh, service economies um that that made it possible right that they, they were inseparable. You couldn't be a self-made man unless you had all this um, uh, infrastructure um, um, behind you. Um, so, you know, I think it strikes at the heart of, of a lot of, you know, what's wrong, but also what's real about uh, the way the world works uh, today, which is, you know, if you, if you have enough money, if you're prosperous, if you're privileged, you can engage in this um, form of, I mean, it's a form of self-delusion, but it's its also, I know the illusion is really interesting, right? That you would have uh, these vast infrastructures that could support uh, people pretending that they don't exist, right? And getting lost seems to be the ultimate expression um, of that, right? It's like, oh, I am completely disconnected, but I'm, I'm still in the lap of, of connection, right? That I know somebody will come and get me if it gets really bad. Yeah. Which, yeah, it's a, it's, which a, is, it's, it's a little bit of a delusion then, but. Which um, is wrong, right? I mean, that's how, how people get killed if you make those assumptions. Um, and, uh, 
and you know they can't yeah um, because that's very true as well well i don't want to take more of your time i'm i'm grateful for you uh, taking a moment with us um do you want to have anything you want to say about uh what you're working on next or what we might anticipate from you um i'm looking at a uh Sorry, it's a Midwestern story. I'm actually working on a history of the Kankakee River, which is kind of right next door uh, to me in Indiana and South Bend. Um, and uh, so I'm talking about its disappearance. There used to be uh, uh, 500,000 acres of wetlands um, uh, connected to this river that um, were completely drained. So I'm trying to, to recreate it and I'm messing around with uh, writing it in uh, reverse chronology um, to think about how uh, time um, is constructed um, through rivers and things like that. You are very much a cultural historian, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. You take environmental topics and then um, really nerd out on on them in kind of very higher you know, higher level thinking ways, which is a uh, which is great. You get us to ask really unexpected questions of things that we think seem uh, really simple. I like it. Thanks. Well, uh, thanks so much. Uh, and I know the book is, is a year or two old at this point, but um, congrats on finishing it and getting it out there. Uh, oh. I really, really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate you having and me. And I, I hope you're able to go um, get out there and get lost, you know, sometime soon, uh, myself <laughs> as well. <laughs> Sounds great. Not too lost. Yeah. Just up to the line. There we go. Great. All right. Take care, John. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you'll subscribe and listen every month. Please leave us a review on whatever app or platform you're listening through. Or follow us on Facebook at Writing Westward Podcast or on Twitter at Writing West, where you can get updates and leave comments. Writing Westward is a production of the Charles Rudd Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. We're an interdisciplinary research center that supports academic research and the promotion of public understandings about the North American West. We host regular public lectures, which we live stream, have an annual funding cycle with award, grant, and fellowship categories that nearly anyone researching or working on the region from any disciplinary approach or towards any final product can apply. Learn more at redcenter.byu.edu. That's R-E-D-D Center. Our theme music was provided by local Utah composer Micah Dahl Anderson. Find him at Micah, D-A-H-L, Dahl, Anderson, with an O, dot com. I'll put a link in the episode description. My name is Brendan Rensink. I serve as the podcast host, producer, and just about everything else. So you can direct any praise or critique my way. I'm author and editor of a number of books on the West, borderlands, native peoples, genocide studies, religion, and the environment. Recently, my book, Native But Foreign, Indigenous Immigrants and Refugees in the North American Borderlands, published by Texas A&M University Press in 2018, won the Best Historical Nonfiction Book Award from the Western Writers of America. In an anthology I co-edited with P. Jane Hafen, entitled Essays on American Indian and Mormon History, published by the University of Utah Press in 2019, won the Metcalf Best Anthology Book Prize from the John Whitmer Historical Association. Here at the Red Center, I'm also general editor and project manager of a great digital history, uh, public history project named Intermountain Histories. It's a free mobile app and website, uh, intermountainhistories.org, that curates student-researched and written micro-histories of the region, complete with archival photos, bibliographies, and more. 
To contact me about the podcast, my own research, or anything else, head to bwrensink, that's R-E-N-S-I-N-K, dot org, or follow me on Twitter at Brendan W. Rensink. Until next month, be well, be curious, and be kind. Cheers. Cheers.